Without any further ado, why don't you grab your Bibles, if you have them, and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I've got a pastor buddy who, for a season in his life, lived and worked in an economically depressed part of a, of a major U.S. city. And he told me the story once of, um, or I heard him tell the story once of, of, uh, of an evening that was very significant in the life of he and his wife. Uh, they were sitting down to dinner in their little apartment that was upstairs uh, on a busy, uh, a busy street uh, in the downtown area of the city where they lived. Uh, and they were sitting down to their burritos and their peace and this sort of domestic tranquility uh, scene that's being painted for you was interrupted by the sound, the unmistakable sound of gunshots below them. And it was very loud. It was very shocking. And he looked out the window and he saw uh, a man running down the alleyway, squeezing off rounds uh, as he went. And so uh, he immediately called the police, said there's uh, been a shooting. And the police responded very quickly. There were lots of police officers who came to the scene, and sure enough, they found a, a young man who was staggering uh, down the alley a block or so away who had, uh, who had received multiple uh, gunshots, a series of bullets in his chest and his shoulders. And fortunately, this young man lived, but the man who shot him was, was never found. And it was, uh, to hear my friend tell it, it was a remarkable transformative experience for him having witnessed this. But almost just as profound and just as transformative was what happened in the wake of this experience. He said that something irreversible happened to me and my wife. We became witnesses. We observed something strange, something out of place and stunning. And and we found ourselves in in police interviews and in conversations with friends just telling and retelling and retelling the story, almost unable to contain it. We told it again and again because that's what a witness does. A witness testifies to what he's seen. When we encounter something extraordinary, we can't help but share that experience. We're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John this morning, and in verse 19 of chapter 1, John, who is Jesus' best friend, he's sharing his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He takes a turn from the prologue of verses 1 through 18 to the narrative that's going to take up the rest of his account in this book. If we were to use courtroom language, verses 1 through 18 is, is sort of the opening statement that John makes. And then in verse 19, he's going to turn his attention to his first witness. He's going to call his first witness. And in verses 1 through 18, John's been making these grand claims about how God has acted in human history. That's what we've been studying up to this point in this book. We've seen that the Word, the Logos, the eternal Word of God has come in the flesh. He's dwelt among us. In him is life, and this life that he gives is the light of men. To all who received this word, he, be, he gave the right to become children of God. From his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. We've, we've seen his glory. He's made God known to us. That's his, that's his opening argument. That's his thesis statement of the book. And in verse 19, he turns his attention to his proofs of that statement he calls his first witness. And the first witness that John's going to call is another man named John, John the Baptist. He's already mentioned him a couple of times uh, in the prologue we saw in verses, five through, uh, excuse me, verses 6 through 8. It says, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then in verse 15, he says, John bore witness about him, about this word. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
And what we're going to see this morning in John 1, 19 through 28, is that John the Baptist is the first and the greatest, the preeminent witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he is going to give his witness statement, he's going to give his testimony over the course of two days. And we're going to look at the first day, which is described in verses 19 through 28 today, and the second day, verses 29 through 34, next Sunday. So we want to give our attention to this witness and what he has to say about what he's seen and experienced. So if you're willing and able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptized, was baptizing. This is the word of God, and he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word with eager expectation that you will do what you promised to do, which is to reveal yourself to us. Give us spiritual eyes to behold the Christ. And in seeing him, let us be transformed by him. Lord, I ask that you would subdue the weaknesses and the sins of the preacher this morning. Lord, I pray that my words, whatever I say that doesn't, whatever I may say that doesn't accord with the truth of your word, let it let it be taken away by the, by the wind like so much chaff. But whatever is of you, whatever accords with your words, your revelation, your truth, let it take root in our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory and for our everlasting joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. We're going to look at the witness of John the Baptist, and we have three points this morning. The man, the plan... And the witness, the man, the plan, and the witness. We're going to start with the man. Who was John the Baptist? If you're going to understand who he was and how significant he was, you're going to have to understand a few things about how he actually came on the scene. The story of John the Baptist actually begins uh, in, with, with his parents, uh, which is, and these events are narrated for us in Luke chapter 1. Uh, John the Baptist was born to an old priest named Zechariah. And his wife, whose name was Elizabeth. And according to Luke 1, Zechariah and his wife were very old and very barren. They were probably in their 80s. They didn't have any children, which would have been a source of great hurt and, and, and uh, shame in the community that they were a part of in that day. 
And Zechariah was a priest, and the events surrounding John the Baptist's birth come on what certainly would have been the greatest day of Zechariah's life. You see, as a priest, Zechariah was chosen by lot, Luke 1 tells us, to uh, be called up from his division to serve and to offer incense in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And to understand how significant this was, there were about 20,000 priests in Israel at that time. Uh, And there were 24 divisions of priests. And those divisions would be called up to serve in the temple for a period of about two weeks at a time. And within that division, there were hundreds of priests. And they would choose one by lot to go in and to minister and worship in the temple. This was would have been the highlight of Zechariah's life. Most priests never got to experience this. But Zechariah did. And he would go into the holy place in the inner sanctuary. He would offer incense. He would trim the lamps. He would tend to the bread of the presence. And as he's doing this, he's no doubt worshiping. He's praying to God in his heart as he's working. When all of a sudden, according to Luke, he realizes he's not alone in the room. There's someone else there. And the angel Gabriel appears before him, and he, he gives him this message. He says, he says, guess what, Zechariah? You're going to have joy and gladness because your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive a son. And this son, he's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. You're going to name him John, and he is going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb. He's going to come in the Spirit and the power of Elijah, and he's going to do this incredible work within the people of Israel. He's going to turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel back to the Lord. And Zechariah, I think this is an understandable response, but it's not a good response. He says, how am I supposed to know this? How are these things going to be? We're very old. We're going to conceive a son. We're in our 80s. And as a result, the angel strikes Zechariah dumb. He's unable to speak for a large number of days. And eventually, Elizabeth, his wife, does conceive miraculously, and she gives birth to a son And on the eighth day after his birth, when they take him to be circumcised, Zechariah's tongue is loosed as he says his name is going to be John. And he says says this great benedictus that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. Zechariah, who hasn't been able to speak for months on end, finally speaks. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And down in verse 76, he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's called the Benedictus. Blessed. Zechariah blesses the Lord for this son. And verse 80 says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this happens. John grows up and he, he sort of goes off the grid for a period of about 30 years. <laughs> have you ever have you ever watched House Hunters off the grid? There's a there's a, a specific stream of House Hunters where they're, they're, people are looking for houses that are literally off the grid. They're you know they're, we're going to be we're going to live primally. We're going to live out in the sticks in the in the boonies where there's no electricity and but we need to find this this house and, and it, it follows the the same pattern of, of every House Hunters you've ever seen on HGTV. Uh, it's like well well my husband is a professional snowboarder. 
I sell essential oils on the internet, and our budget is $1.5 million, right? <laughs> and what's funny about, about this version of House Hunters is they go, and, and they, they want to be off the grid, right? But then the reason they don't buy this house is, well, you know, I don't know if that sunroom is big enough to house my yoga studio, and, you know, or the best one is, well, the internet doesn't reach out here, so I can't run my business. It's off the grid. Like, what, what did you think you were getting yourself into? So people think they want to be off the grid, but John the Baptist was truly off the grid, okay? He is literally in the wilderness, which if you, if you know much about the Old Testament, that's the place where God would, would traditionally meet with his prophets. He would meet with them in the wilderness, then send them back to his people with the message he had for them. And he comes on the scene about 30 years later or so, and he is preaching a baptism of repentance, and he's preaching a bold message to the people of God in the wilderness. Here's Matthew's account of what John the Baptist was doing. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were coming out of the city to hear this man. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." This is the message he's proclaiming in the very next verse. Jesus is going to come to him and he's going to baptize Jesus. And the events in John chapter 1 are taking place about six weeks subsequent to these verses that I just read in Matthew. And it's been six weeks because Jesus, after his baptism, do you remember where he goes? He spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. So this is six six weeks later, Jesus' spooky cousin, John the Baptist, is on the scene, and he is what my mother would call making a ruckus, okay? He is causing a major disturbance in the social order. And he's making a, he's making a disturbance, one, because of his appearance. He, he, was, he took a Nazarite vow, which means uh, he never cut his hair. It means he never touched the fruit of the vine. He never touched a dead body. He was eating locusts and honey, which just sounds odd. I actually, the closest I've ever come to this, when we were in Uganda... Um, we, uh, somebody took us out for dinner and they said, you got to try this, this is great. Fried grasshopper, you'll love it. I did not love it. It was disgusting, okay? John the Baptist is doing very strange things and people don't know what to do with him. People don't know what to do with him. He's making a stir. He's like a toddler at a funeral. He's disrupting the social order. It says in Luke's gospel that multitudes are coming out. Huge crowds are coming out to hear his preaching. But it's not only his appearance, it's not only his manner that's causing a stir. It's also his message. He's preaching a baptism of repentance and he's baptizing people in the Jordan. Now, baptism uh, is something that they had in that day, but they had what was called proselyte baptism, meaning that 
those who converted from, uh, from being Gentile to Judaism would, would uh, engage in this activity called proselyte baptism, where uh, the convert would, would baptize themselves. They would, they would ritually cleanse themselves to purify themselves for entrance into Judaism. But it wasn't administered by a priest. They did it for themselves. And what John's doing is very different than proselyte baptism. He is the one doing the administration of the baptism. And he's not baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism. He's baptizing Jews. This is causing a stir. He's calling upon Israel to receive cleansing. He's making this announcement. It is time for you to repent. The crisis moment, the inflection point of all of human history where the Messiah comes, where he comes and dwells in your midst, it's here and you're not ready. You, people of God, sons of Abraham, faithful Jews, you are not ready for his coming. You need to repent and purify yourself for his coming. He's testifying that the long-awaited Messiah has come. That's the ministry that he's carrying out. And so, news of this ministry makes its way back to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 19, that Jews sent priests and Levites to question him. And this is the first uh, occurrence of something that's going to happen a lot in John's gospel. He's going to talk about the Jews. And there's a variety of uses uh, for what he means by this. But most of the time when John talks about the Jews in his gospel, he's talking about the leaders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders who are opposing Jesus. They saw Jesus as a nuisance at best and a subverter and an insurrectionist at worst. They were actively working to oppose him. And this is the first appearance of this group of leaders that he calls the Jews. And they send a delegation. They send a committee to come and question John about what he's doing. And they send priests and Levites. The Levites were, uh, were the people who would minister in the temple. They weren't descendants of Aaron, so they couldn't be priests, but they would be sort of like the priestly assistants. So they would lead worship in the temple, and they would serve as the temple police, which makes sense, right? Because if you get into a tough scrape and you need some law enforcement, you want a worship leader. Can I get an amen? <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, so that's, that was their job. And they were, they were very involved with the purification rituals that would take place in the temple. And so they come to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? They want to know what he's all about. And this leads us to our second point, the plan. If we're going to understand the question that they're asking John, if we're going to understand the back and forth that takes place in the next handful of verses, you need to understand what's happening in redemptive history, in the plan of God from the beginning until the end. God has laid out a plan of salvation, and we need to understand where we are in that whole process. You see, what's significant about this time and place in history is that there have been prophets in Israel, going all the way back to the time of the judges, through the rise of the kings, through David and Solomon, after the splitting of the kingdom, on into the time of exile when, when Israel was taken off to live in foreign lands in captivity, all the way to the return to Jerusalem and the restoration. There have been prophets who have been speaking the word of God to the people of God, but something's happened. God has gone silent. The prophetic office has closed up shop. There has not been a word of the Lord in 400 years. You know, we, we flip from Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, to the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and it's just a page turn for us, but that represents 400 years of silence for God's people. 
There had been no word from the Lord. And so the religious leaders in that day, they're, they're, they're opening their Old Testament. They're looking at all of these prophetic, uh, this prophetic material that says there's going to be one who comes. There's going to be a Messiah, an anointed one who is going to come. He's going to bring peace where there is warfare. He's going to establish uh, political uh, standing for the people of God. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to be a supernatural leader who's going to fix what's wrong in Israel. And this must be what they were getting at as they come to John and they say, who are you? You're doing all of these signs. You're speaking with all of this power, but you're operating outside the system. Who exactly are you, John? And how does John respond? He says that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And that's an awkward construction, but let's just put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. He says, I am not the Christ. Very simply, very clearly, very emphatically. You're looking for the Christ. You're looking for the anointed one who's going to come and set things right. That's not me. I am not the Christ. So they say, all right, they knew their Bibles really well. There are other prophecies they can turn to. If you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Is that who you are? At the very end of the Old Testament, in the last canonical prophet, the book of Malachi, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, this promise was made. Malachi says on behalf of the Lord, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. They say, okay, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot, which sounds awesome. And they're waiting for Elijah to, to hop on the chariot, fire it up again, and come on back down to prepare the way of the Lord. They're saying, John, you kind of look like Elijah. You kind of sound like Elijah. You're dressed like Elijah. You're making people upset like Elijah did. Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. And if you're familiar, if you're familiar with your New Testament, this, this creates a little bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? Because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says this, beginning in verse 13. He says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, until John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, some of your translations will say, if you can bear it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think John the Baptist is telling the truth. He's saying, I am not Elijah. I'm not literally Elijah. I'm John. I'm not return of Elijah or Elijah strikes back or, or whatever. I'm John. And what Jesus is saying that, that, John, that John comes in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, that's the prophecy that was made over him by Gabriel before he was born. And he fulfills the promise of the Old Testament that Elijah would come. So he is not Elijah the person, but he comes to fulfill the ministry of Elijah. I think this is a mark of John the Baptist's humility as well, that he, does not, he would not dream of identifying himself with the great prophet Elijah. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. They have one more question for him. You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Not a prophet, but the prophet. Now they're going back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, where where God is speaking through Moses and he says, I'm going to raise up another leader for you, another prophet for you like Moses, a mediator between God and his people. John, are you that? Are you that prophet? He says, no. 
Man, a few words, this John, apparently. He's going to get going in just a minute. And you can almost hear the frustration in these leaders' voices. Well, well, if you're not any of those guys, then tell us who you are. We have to give an answer to the Pharisees who sent us. We've got to go back with more than just who he's not. So who are you? And I think his answer is really interesting. This is fascinating to us. He says, you're looking at all these places in the Old Testament to try to figure out who I am. The Old Testament did mention me, but it's in a different place. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Here's what it says. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The, the imagery there is, is that it, when a king was going to travel into a city, he would send his messenger ahead who would say, prepare the way for the king. And what they would do is, it was a very mountainous and hilly region with lots of valleys and, and, and hills and mountains. And what they would do is, they would make a straight path for him. They would clear out obstacles. They would bring down hills. They would build up valleys so that the king would have a straight shot into the city so that he could ride triumphantly into the city. And what John the Baptist is saying is that I'm the one who comes before the king and I make his path straight. I'm preaching a baptism of repentance because he's coming and you need to make preparations. You need to prepare your hearts. You need to repent. You need to take part in this exercise of purification and ready your heart because the king is coming. If you'll allow a kind of a crude analogy here, he's like the, the offensive lineman who's like the, ro- the road grader. He's blocking out in front so that the running back has a clear path. And he goes untouched through the line of scrimmage. John the Baptist says, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'm not the word. I'm a voice getting you ready for the word. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy who tells you about the guy. They say, all right, I don't totally get what that means. Well, then why are you baptizing? And I love John's answer because he doesn't even actually deal with the question that they're asking. He says, I baptize you with water. But here's the thing. You don't need to be worried about what I'm doing. You don't need to worry about who I am. You need to worry about the one who's coming behind me. He says, there stands one among you whom you do not know. It's possible, in some of the commentaries they say, it's possible that Jesus was even standing in the crowd at that moment. There's one who stands among you that you do not know. The strap of his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. The point is, the point John's making is that he's not the point. He says, don't look at me. Look at him. The whole point of his ministry was to take attention and take it away from himself and put it on the Christ who is coming. Don't concern yourself with me, religious leaders. Don't concern yourself with what I'm doing, crowds. Concern yourself with the one who's coming. I'm not the point. I am the witness. I'm the witness. This leads to our final point, the witness. Witness is a great word just to summarize who John the Baptist was and what he, what he gave his life for. He lived and he stepped into human history to give testimony in a unique way to the divinity of Jesus Christ, to who he was, to set the stage for what Jesus was going to come and do. 
And he plays a unique role. He is the, John the Baptist stands last in the line of the prophets going back all the way to the, to the early stages of the Old Testament who bore witness to this Messiah, this anointed one who was going to come. And he plays a unique role in history. His baptism is not like the baptism that we do now. You don't baptize, we don't baptize people now. We didn't baptize the last couple of weeks to get people ready to receive Jesus. Now Christian baptism is we, we go down into the water as a symbol of having been unified with Christ, buried and raised with him. Just like his baptism was unique, his witness was unique. But at the same time, this idea of being a witness in the New Testament, it gets pulled forward and applied to us as well. Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended into heaven? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. You, my disciples, the people who have had your lives transformed by who I am, you who have experienced my power and my glory, you're going to go and you're going to be my witnesses to testify to my power in your life. So we're called to be witnesses. That's an identity that we receive when Jesus saves us. And I want us just to look at, in, in our last couple of minutes, three ways that we can be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ in the example of John the Baptist. Identity, boldness, and humility. Three ways we can be a faithful witness to Christ. Identity, boldness, and humility. First, identity. You know, for John the Baptist, being a witness wasn't just a one-time sort of thing. It was his life. It was his heartbeat. It was the air that he breathed. He spent his whole life preparing to become a witness to Jesus Christ. And then his entire ministry was about bearing witness to him. It was in his DNA. It was in his name, John the Baptist. John is, is so emphatic. He, he understands something important about himself. He also understands in his identity who he is not. He understands that he is a witness, but he also understands who he's not. He understands, I am not the Christ. What about you? Do you know that? Do you know that you're not the Christ? You might say, thank you, pastor. I came to church today so I could hear you tell me I'm not Jesus. That was, I really needed that. Thank you. But here's the thing. We understand intellectually that we're not the Christ. But so often, how, how often is it true that our attitudes and our actions can absolutely betray our confession? We might say, I know that I'm not the Christ. I know that I don't have the power to change people. I know that, that I'm not the one who brings about spiritual fruit in people's lives. But then at the same time, we can act as though it's all up to us. This is a real struggle in parenting, isn't it? To remind yourself that you're not the Christ. You don't get to save your kids. You're not the one who's going to bring about spiritual fruit in their lives. We see this in our relationships as well. Husbands, you know you are not the Christ to your wife. Wives, you know you are not the Christ to your husband. You are not the Christ to that friend who's walking through that difficult time. You're the witness, not the Christ. You can't fix people. You can't change people. You're not the Savior who can take care of their sin problem. You're the witness who points them to the one who can. I was very convicted reading Paul, Paul Miller's book called A Praying Life, and he talks about 
he talks about the struggle he had in parenting a daughter who had special needs. They would try to get her to stop this certain behavior, and it was just this ongoing struggle, and it was just just so hard time and time again dealing with these same sorts of issues until one day he was just convicted, like, I need to pray more than I'm correcting. And he said, what I found is that in, in, in applying this idea and really believing that I'm not the Christ, really believing that it's God who brings about change in the life of my child, I've learned that my best parenting is done on my knees, wrestling with God over the gospel for my children. You're not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Not only identity, but, but boldness. This, let's go back to that awkward phrase. He confessed and did not deny but confessed. Some of your translations will say, he confessed and did not deny, but went on confessing. It's awkward in English. It's awkward in the original language too. But what he's getting at is, John is absolutely emphatic. He's laying down this, this, this strong emphasis on what he's saying. And so my wife uh, walked in on an argument, a robust dialogue between a couple of my kids this week, and one of them said to the other, you don't know anything about my life, and you will never tell me what to do. <laughs> right? It's emphatic, isn't it? That's the same level of, of passion and zeal and boldness that John is putting forward when he's saying, I am not the Christ. His purpose in life was his confession, and he proclaimed it boldly. And this was, this was costly to John the Baptist. We understand how John, John's life ended, right? He was a martyr. His head was given as a gift to the daughter of Herod's wife. In fact, the, the word for witness in the New Testament, the basis for it is the word martyreo, which is the word we get martyr from. But John was bold to proclaim the truth of who Jesus was without fear. We need to understand this. We are called to be witnesses. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. This identity determines our mission. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Here's what Paul says. He's talking about this, this work that God does in Christ in making us a new creation. The old passes away and the new comes. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the, word, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, when, we, when we're given this new identity as a witness, it creates a boldness in us, a willingness to plead with people to be reconciled to God, to, to not shy away from difficult issues where the Bible speaks to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. In our witness, we need to understand our identity. We need to live with boldness, but also humility. You know, I think one of the biggest things we're supposed to see from John the Baptist in these verses is the incredible and radical humility that he had. You know what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11? He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus just said John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. And John would have been totally right to say, you need to listen to my message because I'm kind of a big deal. 
He could have pointed to his discipline. I've lived a life completely set apart, completely holy to the Lord. Look at my discipline. I've taken this Nazarite vow. I've, I've obeyed it completely. I've, I've set myself apart so that I can be the most effective and faithful witness I can possibly be. I'm his right-hand guy. But he doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, no, no, no. The one who comes after me was before me and the strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is an idiom. This is really important. This is so key to understanding what John the Baptist is saying. If you were a disciple in the rabbinical school of a rabbi, like the disciples were of Jesus, you weren't just there to listen to his teaching and learn how to teach and espouse doctrine the way that he did. You actually acted as a servant for him. That's what we see in Jesus tells his disciples to go and make preparation in the upper room for the Last Supper. He's sending them off to do the job that a servant would do. And a disciple would have to do everything that a slave would have to do for his master except for one thing. He would not touch his shoes because that would be a defiling thing. It was unclean. That job was saved for the lowest servant, the lowest ranking bond slave that master had. And what John is saying here is, I'm too low to be a disciple. I'm too low to even be the lowest slave to this man. That's how great he is. He's saying, don't look at me. Please don't look at me. I don't matter. Look at him. In John chapter 3, verse 30, he's going to say, he must increase. I must decrease. That was the message of his life. I'm nothing. John the Baptist was humble because he knew who he was. I heard a pastor tell a story recently of a Fortune 500 company CEO who's a member of his church, and he comes in early every Saturday morning to vacuum the sanctuary. The CEO does. And this pastor, nobody knows that he does it. This pastor went to him one day and says, hey, man, why do you do that? We've got people who could do that. He said, no, no, I, I, I want to keep doing it. He says, why? He says, you know, in my job, people line up outside of my office every day to tell me how great I am, to kiss up to me. I walk down the halls, people part like the Red Sea, and I breathe in that every day, Monday through Friday. I breathe it in, and the message that it proclaims to me that I'm great and so I come in on Saturday morning and I vacuum the carpets to remember who I am. I'm a servant. I'm just a witness. I'm not great. He's great. Do you know who you are? I think if John the Baptist were here today, he would not forgive me if I told you that you should look at him to know what it looks like to walk in humility because that's not who we look at. We look to Jesus. Jesus shows us what it means to walk in humility. Look at Philippians chapter two. It's a passage you know if you've been around church any amount of time. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Well, Paul, how do we do that? We're selfish. We love to make much of ourselves. How can we walk in this kind of humility? He says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be taken for his own advantage, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want to be a faithful witness, let's learn from John's example, but let's not look to him primarily. Let's look to Jesus Christ who holds himself out to us this morning in bread and cup, in body and blood. He says, I came low so that you might know salvation, so that you might be my witnesses, my ambassadors. Have you seen the beauty and the greatness of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together.